So, now we listen to Alexander Bard, Adultify the World. You look at me, yeah. I did not suggest <laughs> no. that. That was who, someone else's suggestion. Is that Brian? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if we're looking for places to start, I guess I'd be super curious, because the three of us have been talking about this book for a year or more, and well, Digital Libido, which we read after we watched this video. So I'd be super curious to hear from the people who have just now been introduced to Bard for the first time what you thought, if you hated it, if you loved it, if you mixed it, I don't know, whatever insights struck you. I really liked him, I, which <laughs> maybe that's because I went into it with, I think last week people were saying he's kind of an asshole. <clears throat> I I just thoroughly enjoyed listening to him, and he has a great laugh. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff that he laughs about is great also. Yeah. I don't really know where to start as far as discussing it, but I thoroughly enjoyed listening to him. I was feeling Josiah, I feel... I was expecting to not like him, just based on some comments or feedback I've heard, and then... I don't know if I like him, but I feel <laughs> curious, and like, I was poking around trying to listen to a little bit more, and I was really struggling to like, wrap my head around what he's about, and I, I mean, I really had just listened to that one hour thing, and some other clips here and there, um, so right now I feel, like, interested and curious with what he's saying, but I don't, I don't know how to like, wrap, like, put it, my fingers on it totally. It's hard to find an entrance into or like a, a handle on like we we have like some kind of orientation point where like okay but like he's definitely saying this and that has these implications and so it's, but it's nuanced in this way and Wes he's also saying this like getting that first handhold of like what like something he's actually saying mm -hmm. is, is I've, I mean, I've found that amazing. I think I started listening to him. Maybe like a month ago, and I maybe even before that, I started with the Aryan and the Jew, a couple mm -hmm. episodes of that. And, um, I was immediately like, and so I walked away from it for a long time. But then, about a month ago, I think I started with Sweeney versus Bard, and I think those two videos, especially, were like kind of quintessential they were quintessentially the things that annoy me about him <laughs> in, in some ways but like I, I'm in the same way like I it took me like three days of solid listening to Sweeney versus Bard to like just keep pushing down my urge to dislike what I'm hearing and like the voice maybe or I don't know and now I'm like super intrigued and today especially like um, I just want to know more and like the, the amount of knowledge it would take to understand some of the theories he holds is like daunting Definitely. 
what it is that you don't like? Like what it like you're saying like you have this negative reaction. There's a lot of um, I think it stems from me not under having some understanding of the things that he's talking about. But there's a lot of like that doesn't work, mm-hmm. and he he doesn't really explain why. And he's but he's like that's a dead idea. That's a dead theory. This is the only right way. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of that. So it's like an arrogance. Yes. In argument. Yeah, I think there's an arrogance, but it's just like don't bother even laying it out. I mean, he does lay it out. Occasionally, and the more you listen to it, you find where he makes arguments for why he's coming to the places he's come to. But a lot of times, he's just like, "That's a stupid idea." Especially, <laughs> it was dead a long time. The Aryan and the Jew and Sweeney versus Sparta are very different from what you watched because he's in dialogue with another person, and he'll just be like, "You're an idiot." Yeah, <laughs> like, you're wrong. <laughs> His social skills. <laughs> Yeah, and so there, yeah, you feel like you're, even as a third party listener, (laughs) separated by time and space, you feel like you're being browbeaten at times. Mm -hmm. Um, I was going to ask if anybody had read that book that he keeps referencing or whatever. Apparently, some people have. Digital Libido? Mm Because he seems to suggest, I listened to both the lectures, the one that was, I guess, the companion piece to the. Mm the first one so does he go even in more depth into Hegel and Lacan and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. do you guys understand that stuff does anybody <laughs> understand Hegel the two anyone has anybody actually ever read it I'm like curious I'm not even like I'm just curious because <laughs> I've read some Hegel you probably read more I, yeah I've read some, I've read some Hegel um Rush I don't know that I understand it <laughs> Walter yeah Toby and I right now are trying to work our way trying to work our way through Hegel's phenomenology of spirit, just trying to figure out, partly why I'm doing it is because I'm trying to figure out what the hell Bard's getting on about, like, yeah. this is a little, like, he's like, Hegel taught me how to think, you know, like, what are you, what are you, what is he, like, huh, like, what, what, yeah, so I'm kind of like in this little, I feel like he throws out these little breadcrumbs, and I try and pick them up when they come along, and just kind of see what, see what's going on, so, it, I would say I've read Hegel, but I don't know what Bard's talking about. He's talking about Hegel, like how what he's finding in Hegel. So. Well, I remember a professor saying like, or no, this is something I read. It was some like one of the more famous philosophers of the mid 20th century he was like there's probably like a dozen people in the world at any given time that actually understand what Hegel's saying <laughs> and it's like Lacan's the same way I've actually I'm familiar with some of this like more Lacan and more secondhand sources because like you can't really read his writing and it's all these thinkers Bard mentions or these thinkers who are like you basically need some high priest to, to translate for you which is like I'm kind of skeptical of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. it's sort of like and he keeps saying that this is the best book in the world or whatever and like none of you are probably smart enough to read it so just listen to me and it's like again I'm not like this is my own I have this sort of thing like this is maybe just my thing too I'm not smart enough to understand it and I'm totally fine with that but it's like I remember being in school and even Kristeva who you mentioned Julia Kristeva I took a class on her as well in college and understood almost nothing of what it was about and I remember Chomsky, somebody asking him about what do you think of philosophy and the new theory and everything, and he's like, and he's a linguist, he understands structuralism and all these kinds of things that are sort of the backbone of this kind of thought, and he's like, look, 
if a physicist friend of mine comes up to me and like I don't understand what he does, like he can explain, he can translate it into like normal everyday terms that I can understand. And like all the main sciences that are actually saying something that maps up to reality can do that. The thing with theory is it's more like poetry. These guys can't translate this stuff into everyday language. It's almost like there's this priesthood behind it where you have to kind of take what they say like there's this pact between the students or the audience and the thinkers where it's like everybody pretends like they understand what's being said, but it's like it's all very kind of vague and mystical and like and maybe that's my prejudice. Like I get when he's saying basic things. It's like I understand the points he makes about the death drive, he calls it Mordito, it's like Thanatos and Freud and how it's like people kinda of live in between those things. And there's like these basic things that are like, okay, like I get that. But it's these long analyses of, like, yeah, why things are the way they are. Like, he makes this correlation, which is, like, sounds clever, but it's just sort of, like, I don't know where he's coming from, where it's, like, the French Revolution and, like, when the printing press came in and people are reading tabloids and that's how they found out about the royalty and how, like, that's what social justice warriors are doing right now. And I'm just, like, okay, like, but then he just goes on and moves on to something else. And it's a lot of this kind of clever posturing. And, again, it's, like, it's the opposite sort of of like Schmachtenberger where it's like he does not ever drop a name or attribute any of the things he's saying to other people it's all like here's some ideas this is how they map onto the world and you can like figure out whether they mean something to you and whether they're worth studying when you're constantly attaching things to famous names it's like this cult of personality thing arises where it's like it gets in the way of the ideas I think and it's more like these are the books I've read and again the ones that are really complicated it's almost this thing like whoa you know, he says he's read it, and so, like, he must be really profound. <laughs> to me, it's like, there's a little bit of that. It's sort of... I liked a lot of it, but that's what bugged me about that, I guess. Yeah, and I was just curious if anybody else sort of... <clears throat> if you don't understand it, it's because it's, like, maybe... It's there's nothing to understand. <laughs> it's always a great... Or it's a, it's a fine line between, sort of, uh, attribution, like, just attribution. You don't want to take credit for an idea that, that what that's not, not yours, and name-dropping, and, yeah. and uh, like, just listing this, like, this litany of sources that you've, you've read and understand, and, like, I can totally see how, yeah, yeah, Bard come, could come across, like, I could see very easily Bard coming across like that. Um, but, I, know, I, I kind of, I kind of read that more as him as him wanting to attribute like sort of the lineage of his thinking rather than I think he is like actually like profoundly well read I mean like well I have no reason to disbelieve that he's like that well read and um it doesn't seem I don't know yeah it, part of it's just how it reads like it, he's bombastic and feels like an asshole a lot so he feels like an asshole and he's dropping all these names then it totally, totally makes sense to read that as like as just kind of beating you over the head with his like vast exposure um yeah it's just I don't know that, that's not how it reads to me but that's kind of a an impression I I uh I I'm probably the least um experience with him because I've only watched that one, the one adultification of the world um, I'll be honest, I went in, it's like, when I hear that some, you know I hear that somebody's an asshole and they're hard to handle, it's like, that doesn't really bother me um, but I went in with like, I'm kind of having been um, 
very relieved at the narrative that Jordan Peterson provided, talking back to like ideological possession on all sides, but especially the left. I thought it was about fucking time, you know, and that was like a big, a big relief. My first thought when I saw adultification of the world and then like what, what has Jordan Peterson taught us? I was like, I, I'm, I, I don't think Jordan Peterson is profound enough of a thinker for another thinker to be like meditating upon him. Mm. Um, that was my first response because I think that I'm seeing like an entire generation influenced by Jordan Peterson that is, it, it in itself is starting to go overboard in a sense where it's like we're going to need to reel this back in a little bit because what he does provide is really important, I think. That said... I was glad that he said, well, Jordan Peterson's a pop version of what we're trying to, you know, it was like, it was nice to see it wasn't like this slavish, like, I'm yeah. jumping on board this, like, alienated male Jordan Peterson train. Right. You know, um, I like his, how bombastic he was, because um, I, I heard Nietzsche all over it, where he's like, there hasn't been a decent British philosopher since Hume. It's like, <laughs> Nietzsche said shit like that. And it's like, you don't, I don't take it seriously. I think it's like this... Uh, it's an analysis of a cultural trend, right? Where it's like, I, I, I think you can take all that stuff with a grain of salt, and I like that kind of bombast. And the name dropping, I don't know, I'm a name dropper too. I get excited about thinkers and throw it out there, and it's like, I don't even know if I understand half of what I'm talking about. Um, the things that, the thing that, like, I really enjoy Freud being revitalized. It's like, I don't, it's like, I did time with Lacan in college, and it's like, there's two versions of Lacan, I think, with like the signifier signified and then what he did with psychoanalysis, which I think is a lot more interesting, the stages of separation and infantilization and stuff. Um, what he does say of substance in that video that I thought that was my first, like, I, I, it's like, yeah, he's right. Infantilized culture, it's like uh, from both ends, from the welfare state, from the consumer, consumerism, it's like a bunch of people who can't fucking grow up. I couldn't grow up, you know? Um, but when he talks about his... He starts laying down a narrative, and it's like, birth being traumatic, I started to have a problem with, from what I know of, like, have, like people having experienced the birth of their children. Um, and I think that was where it's like, he needed... He's... I think life is suffering in retrospect, and you want to throw that right back to the passage through the womb. I'm not sure that that holds up if you're going to use that as a model of development. Does that make sense? I just thought about my friend Paul, who like described the birth of his daughter, which was like drug-free, and like she came out of the womb, and he held her up, and she was just like looking around the room in like total awe and wonder. And it's like, is that something that just experienced a trauma? I mean, that seemed like seemed like a really essential... I don't know. Somebody else can speak to that, too. But Liz and I talked about that, and it's like... Is that a bit of Rousseauian thinking as well? Even though he was... He's like, he, everybody loves to bash Rousseau. You know? <laughs> We're born free and everywhere in chains. But that seemed to be its own version of... Like a foundation myth that was central to everything that he was building up. Mm -hmm. Is that birth is traumatic and we want to crawl right back into the womb and it's like I don't I'm not discounting some of those ideas I think they were really like powerful and I found I was a lot of what he was saying I was believing but I'd be curious what anyone had to say about that
Yeah, I actually brought this up earlier in conversation that I, I actually remember in college writing a paper about how I couldn't really take any philosopher, philosopher serious who didn't talk about um, being an infant and being a child. So I was like, well, at least here's a philosopher who's trying. And then the other part of me was like, here's another white guy who's never given birth, never been at a birth, probably never really talked to a woman who's given birth, talking about birth, again. Like, <laughs> like I, I definitely felt like similar to you in that he was putting something on something that I had not experienced and have not experienced with other women's births. Um, but I was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that it was set up for an argument. But it is it is hard when the first argument that somebody throws out, you're like, eh, okay, we'll see where you go with this. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the foundational premise of all that comes after. And it doesn't match reality. That's where I got told That's where I, I mean, I liked what he had to say, but... And it made a lot of sense to me in terms of becoming an adult. But even that was ill-defined, like what a, a, an adult is, was ill-defined, at least in the video that we watched. So there's this idea of like we process, we progress through these stages and then we become this adult. But what does that actually mean? I didn't feel like that was clear at all in it. I heard go to work and provide. And I'm sorry, but like that's that can provide meaning, but that's not your production level is not does not equate necessarily meaningful life. There's lots of really productive people that are not living a meaningful life. They're living in that that death space, you know? And so it's like, there were some things that I had, pro like, problems with the thinking, but I'm really curious about it because I feel like in an hour you can't really get deep. So I'm, like you, I'm left feeling like I need to listen more because there's some things that were missing maybe, but my my initial response was like this is, it, it starts with a false premise that it, you know, we come into world totally traumatized and everything that comes after that is sort of based on that initial idea and that's not my experience in attending births with and watching children come into the world and having children um yeah but then i thought i'm sorry yeah anyway so it was kind of an interesting like that was a, that was hard for me because i was like well how do you how can I take these other things as sort of on their own and the, their own value when the sort of starting place seems flawed to me? I think I can do that, but it was just like, it was interesting to try to navigate that as I was watching. I'm, I'm really curious, and we were talking about this a little bit, but when you say birth is not traumatic, I mean, I've experienced two births in person and it seems incredibly traumatic to me. It's like, I just, when you say that's just obviously a false premise, like I think of like, you shall be cursed with childbirth, like from the Bible. It's mm -hmm. like, like there's this long lineage of, and it, it yeah, I'm just, it doesn't seem like a happy, like yay fun event or something. Like, so, it's, so I think it is, 
let me rephrase my so yes it's very difficult it's hard it's hard to give birth but I'm thinking of my experience in watching the babies like the babies until until they're assaulted in some way by like <laughs> which he mentioned yeah he did part, mention yeah. that yeah. you know but it's like they don't I've not seen granted I haven't I think I've been to eight births total of them on my own. Um, the counts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in my, what I witnessed, and what I, like, yeah, it's, it's traumatic. It was traumatic for me. Like, my body was going through trauma. But I don't know, I don't know. Hmm. It just... It seemed overdone at the very least. Yeah, maybe exaggerated. Mm-hmm. As to, like, because it's like, this thing is so traumatic, and then we just want to climb back in there, and, you know, and I, that's, I was kind of like, ah, I don't know about that. Yeah, but I then, had the yeah. same reaction to, like, just assuming that every living being is born with the desire to die immediately. It's just, to me, seems absurd, because life wouldn't persist if that was the case. Like, it, that's a self-terminating mode of being, right? Like... Eventually, I don't know. Maybe I don't understand the death drive, death drive completely, but like, we'll coexist huh. with the world alone. Yeah, which is our intention. Yeah. I had a hard time too with his idea that the womb is this perfect space because I spent a lot yeah. of time when I was pregnant for the first time researching what that nine months like babies experience trauma if their mother experiences trauma like that's been genetic like epigenetically proven that. Like, if a woman experiences starvation, like, two generations later, you can still see signs of that in, in, in babies. So I, that also, like, even yeah. before the birth, I was like, it's not a, per- like, it's not a perfect space. Um, I thought of that, too, but that seems a little, like, picking nits to me, because yeah. it's, that doesn't really disprove his point at all, even if he's, like, wrong. But like, because, like, ideally it is, like, happy and wonderful and, like, connected. Well, but then if you get, but then if you have the flip side of that, where this is supposed to be the perfect and this is supposed to be the tra- trauma, like I have a problem with both of those. That's and that's mm-hmm. like that's kind of what I'm getting at is like yeah. there's a central paradox that is always trying to be solved, um, which I. Th- there has to, it's like what. The interesting question is, is like, why does there have to be a foundation myth to an to like a system of thought mm-hmm. that tries to solve death? Essentially, that's what's being. I mean, I I personally like found his foundation myth, which is central. It's like we're born into suffering. We did not. We go into denial of the trauma of birth, and then we move from there. And to to become an adult is to solve the central paradox of our ego individuating and creating alienation which causes us to fear death whereas death returns us to the oneness from which we came and that's like i think that's what i mean a lot of like spirituality and religion tries to do so there's that central paradox is like how do we exist and that's the death drive is in i mean you know sex is like a, a a loss of self into the, a return to the oneness all of like dr- like a drug trip is like a death you know is like a near death yeah. experience all of those things and I think that's what Freud was onto is like 
let's differentiate the part that wants what in you wants to annihilate yourself and what in you wants to return to the oneness and how do you straddle that how do you I mean I think partly for me becoming an adult was like coming to grips with my own mortality and death and like looking that in the face and to like stop building ego constructs around it and to have a proper as non-fear driven attitude as I possibly can and that's what I it's like I feel like his his dynamic is I was found it really compelling I mean it but what is it what is it about thought patterns and and building systems of thought that need that kind of like from like the you know creation myth to like to like the idea that you know Freud had them too everybody has them that were like there's some central like we're born into suffering or yeah. birth is a trauma or life is all of that seems to be in retro retroactive to like and it like the ego's experience of life has to like trace itself back into like some utopia in reverse if yeah. that makes sense yeah, I didn't I hadn't made the distinction that it is the story of the fall essentially it's like we keep repeating the, it I don't know if it was in that video or the, like the second part of it, which is at the same conference where he's talking about uh, that we don't have access to so kind of the model that he's trying to maybe propose or that even like what you guys are just talking about. We want to find like how did human beings live before they were alienated by like civilization and it's like well, there's no historical records so we don't know and it's sort of like Freud realized that he said early on and just sort of came to terms with that and like tried to like I think that's why they keep doing that is like but that's sort of like where his tragic view comes from is like we don't even have access to that state like somehow we're already alienated like our own language and history and culture is sort of founded on this weird like apartness or whatever <laughs> yeah that is something Bard really focuses on is that um, sort of tribal structures and how to like reintegrate those I guess with the idea being that if we could like get closer to living to the way we used to live that we'd solve some of our problems which honestly I think there's probably some truth to you mm -hmm. I would think a lot he, he seems to draw a hard line between like nomad and civilized as like civilized being the, the ideal like a settled civilization like he talks a lot about tribal archetypes but they all seem to be centered around his he religious gets, philosophy he gets more explicit about that in other places and talks about his like ideal civilization would have both the, like a nomadological worldview and a what does he call it? eventological which is like the civilization where so in the nomadological it's always the return of the same it's the same year over and over and over again whereas eventological is like Christ is born and dies for our sins and we have a whole new world that opens up and he wants to like somehow or you know he thinks Zoroastrianism combined them. Oh yeah, you've listened to that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Which I don't know that part. I'm, I'm you mean like combined, you mean like a cyclical kind of Eastern theory of like everything just repeats? And then the kind of Judeo-Christian like there actually is like change and you can be part of that, you're an agent. And like yeah. The, he thinks that you need both of those for civilization to function properly. What's his new book called? Process and Event or something? Process and Event. Like, that's another way of framing it, where you have, yeah, you've got the, the nomadological, cyclical time conception, where time is just, it's not, you're not progressing into the future, you're 
you're, uh, you're repeating. Um, and the changing of the seasons and everything is just death and birth and death and birth. Right. Then you have event, eventology, yeah. And it's just like there's a linear progression and like one thing ends, another thing begins, one thing ends, another thing begins. Um, and you kind of, they both have strengths and weaknesses, like the... Speaking of the <laughs> circular progression. Yeah. The, the, the cyclical vision, like it's kind of necessary for a groundedness in history and... I don't know, in ourselves well, he, and nature. He roots it in the matriarchy and the patriarchy. Like, oh, the matriarchy yeah. has the nomadological, cyclical worldview, and the patriarchy has, like, eventological... He, use, he, use, he uses magical and... Well, yeah. Is it magical and phallic? Um, Either way, it's not good. <laughs> patriarchy. Um, well, he just... I think he... I don't know. He uses those, like... I don't... I don't know. I'm, am I misremembering? I don't think he uses matriarchy and patriarchy very often, and he uses them very specifically when, when he does. Yeah, he uses those words to describe like the tribal structure of the way that tribes rule themselves, essentially. The matriarchy is the inner circle, the patriarchy uh -huh. is the outer circle. And he uses matriarchy and patriarchy? I think so. He did in the last part of that second lecture. That's where I actually, like, that's what I was waiting for. Is like, when's he gonna, I get the diagnosis and how fucked up everything is, what's your solution? And it's yeah. like, at the very end, it's like, okay, we need to, like, and he actually drew, a, like, a picture, and it was, like, the matriarchal thing is more of a close-knit thing, and then, like, the patriarchy resides on the outside, and is that, like, doing stuff or something. And then there were the bridges, and then the shamans on the outside, which I found really cool. Yeah, well. I like that, yeah. too. But the thing I found myself wondering about with that specifically, so, so like, there are going to be people for whatever reason are incapable of actually becoming an adult mm -hmm. you know and so like in in societies like they, they still have a place right they're, they're play, there's a, a function for them to perform within that within that society but like in our the societies that he's criticizing in terms of how this sort of Interruption of the adultification process by taking care, taking care of people. Uh, and he talks about like with money or or through consumerism. Like the, I just found myself wondering, like, okay, so how does that match up with this fact that within every society, people who, for whatever reason, you know, are challenged and not capable of sort of moving into that space. I can't remember exactly where it was, but I, I felt like he was saying that that is the, the masculine responsibility is to, to make people grow up. That that's like the responsibility of the masculine. Um, and so like the people who can't come out of their child childishness wouldn't be the ones that would be on the outskirts but they would rather be the ones that like we need to force to grow up rather than coddle essentially but maybe I'm misunderstanding what you're saying yeah I got that piece but I wondered like when he was talking about the tribal structure and he's talking about the different roles so for those that are more gender fluid and maybe don't like maybe I'm fit more in the 
because I've always been more of a tomboy, you know, so I fit more in the, the outer role than I do the end. Like, that there's some fluidity. I mean, he talked about that. And that he talked about uh, the in-betweens, like, that, that there are people who kind of straddle the fence between the matriarchy and the patriarchy and then the shamans, of course, which are the weird ones that are on the fringes, as he sort of talked about himself being there. But, like, it, like there are people in a, let's say that we had a tribe of 150 people, there would be people within that tribe that for whatever reason, emotionally, mentally, um, through, through accident or injury, were incapable of stepping into a responsible role. I found myself wondering, you know, like, because of the criteria that was sort of set out as what an adult is in that video, what happens to those people? Because something I struggle with all the archetypal stuff is like, what if you don't fit the archetype? And it's like, is it justification for yeah. like being other and being done with those people? Or like, I, I, I don't know. Part of that, I just don't know what good the archetype does. I understand how it's arrived at, but I think, but I, like... Yeah, it's almost like as a thought, as a thought experiment or as a concept, it's useless. As a totem, something that's integrated into society and practiced in ritual, it would be a lot... And it's, that's what's interesting about all these ideas in, in, like, post-Empire ideas is they're all, they, like, occur behind glass as though we're looking at a we're looking at a diorama of like the utopia that we want to get back to. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes sense to me that the archetypes, at least for a long time, function to ensure our survival. So yeah. we have this kind of, and like, this is the sort of Peterson view of evolution, yeah. right? It's like those things are like embedded into us at some level. I think Bar's just like jumping off of that discussion around archetypes and then just assuming that everybody. Because probably everybody at that conference did know because <laughs> they all read yeah. Jordan Peterson. Um, and then we, yeah, now we're just at this place where they're just kind of so far removed. useless or worse. Like, you actually, you know, if you wanted to be like the warrior patriarch archetype, and <clears throat> yeah, you wouldn't be very popular on Facebook. That's like <laughs> not something you'd want to put on your profile. That, the thing about the archetypes is actually one of the the haziest ideas it, to me that he has. Can you speak um, a little bit louder? I can't hear you. Sure. The, the, <clears throat> the archetypes are like one of the more confusing and hazy. Like, what on earth is he talking about uh-huh. specifically? Because he doesn't give me, I mean, he gives some examples of functions, you know, like of, of the, you know, the androgynous, the, the shamanic, the magical, the phallic, or whatever. Um, but then he suggests there's all these other archetypes. And this is my this is my hunch, and I'd like to hear your if you all think I'm on doing something or not. Is so he proposes like yeah we don't have access to the ancient of days thing, but there's this fascinating new thing called you know big data and basically big data data anthropology essentially. And he's kind of going like. 
um, if we can, we can ask a set of questions, he basically proposed, like, what if we were to ask the question of nomadological structures, given what we know about nomadic structures and tribal structures in our contemporary world, or at least the recent past, um, like the Inuit culture, or the lists a couple different options. What if we were to kind of, with the pieces we have there, and with, um, with this question in mind, like, can we identify in data any structures that suggest ways that maybe the way we've been evolved to be nomadic and tribal is persisting in, like, contemporary culture? So it's kind of like a, more like a heuristic, like, more like a discovery thing, like, what if we were to do that? What if we were to do research with the data, this, like, ridiculous amount of data we have, and ask the question of how these tribal structures show up, if they show up at all. Further, since civilization is like not old at all compared to our genetic structure and the way we've lived for so long, tribal structures, maybe an analysis of like what's wrong can be understood in terms of that nomadological structure. Um, so I think that's, that's where he's kind of looking at rites of passage. And it, keep in mind, at this moment, he's like talking at a men's group. So this is like his audience. Right. And it's a men's group that's mostly bought into Jordan Peterson. So he's like, Jordan's great. We're just going to add on to it a little bit. You know, so I mean, Nietzsche and Jung are very difficult to read. Um, not as hard as Lacan. I, I, <laughs> Lacan's like, I've never had an experience like reading Lacan, right? Literally like 50 pages in, it was like, thought I was still in the preface or something. And it's so like, hard. oh, this is the book. Like, <laughs> no, like, I don't know what's going on. And the all. little like cartoon thing. Those are beautiful. The tree. Oh, <laughs> the, <laughs> He's like Matthews. I was like, I actually did buy one. <laughs> Lacan for idiots or whatever. I tried that one. That one. I did beautiful. do that as well. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so the the one of the things he kind of brings up with the tribal structure is that the he suggests that the tribe kind of helps identify what you're good at. So it's not so much like what do I need for my ego structure to kind of right. feel on top of the world. It's like you, we actually forever have had other people helping <clears throat> out to us how we can be useful, not just to us but to the tribe. Yeah. And so to have that go away um, is problematic. Because, uh, yeah, so that, it, it's a, and I think he, when he talks about archetypes in some context, he kind of mentions just like jobs and stuff like that, but I think that's like a really, for him, that's a not a very robust version of it, but it's good enough for now. We need something like that. But I think it's more of an open question as we do big data, or if anyone does big data anthropology, can we begin to identify kind of patterns of people? Like, do, do different, does a typology of people start to emerge? Um, and the only thing I'll point out in terms of the experience is, I don't know if you've ever been in like a group therapy context, but one of the most startling things about group therapy is how much your suffering is actually like someone else's suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, and so... There's this way in which you're like hearing this story and you're like, wait, I thought that was just <coughs> me. Like, but apparently there's an us and, and that guy too. <laughs> and then other people share and apparently they have something in common with like a handful of people over here. There's a weird way in which what I mean, where I've assumed I've been an individual, I discover that I have this like odd commonality with, with someone else in terms of temperament or 
style of suffering. I don't know what to call it. But I think he's like, I, what I'm inclined to do is triangulate between that experience and group context and how illuminating that can be. And then this other kind of data anthropology question of like, can we research that moving forward and find patterns that maybe can point to something like archetypes? And then a third thing, like, we we're missing maybe in our contemporary culture that being known and being told how you can be useful for the tribe and we're suffering as mm. a result of that. That's like that's the most sense I can make out of the archetypes, because he's not specific. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. tell us anything about any of them. Yeah. Well not a lot of that makes sense to me. And like I struggle I think too with some of this God on the internet. And like yeah. combining that with the, the archetype discussions and and maybe I'm taking his archetypal analysis as just like his exclamation of the ideal, which I assume it is. But like I, trying to map those all those ideas together, it just like can be a cluster. Well, there's one more thing out there, if I may. One mm -hmm. of the ways that I, one of the reasons why I think I enjoy Alexander Bard's thinking is it's kind of like it's not like a link that links me to like a very specific web page. It's more like a hashtag where like if I start thinking in these terms, it will start showing. It's kind of suggesting like, hey, follow this hashtag. Like networks, network dynamics. I just start thinking about networks, and all of a sudden I start looking around, and I notice there will be clusters of people kind of thinking about networks. And usually their ideas are like seem to be very suggestive for our present day. You know, so it's it's he's oftentimes not very exact, but it's just kind of a concept that he's like, look out for something that maybe looks like this, and that's so it ends up like helping me kind of curate what's maybe relevant. And in that way, it's kind of does the sense making. It's more like a hashtag. You know? <laughs> I like that analogy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wanted to jump off something you said, because um, you said something that I wanted to come back to you about. Um, like adult is just like working and then like being productive and like that seems kind of unsatisfying and other places I've, I've read or heard Bard talk about the next stage after adulthood being what does he call it priesthood or something but for him there's still like adulthood is not like some sort of final arrival okay there's like it's a trajectory and it's like because in, in his like the adult aspires to become a priest or something like that and the priest aspires to become God I think sage or something yeah. and the sage so it is uh, I think it's that mostly when he talks that way is a reaction to the sort of fetishization of childhood and it's like oh yeah we were kids would be so great and like, we wouldn't have to do anything it's like no being an adult is amazing like it's so much worse to be a kid like, what are you talking about <laughs> so that's super helpful because I was really confused I also didn't realize he was just speaking to a men's group I mean, yeah, I should have paid attention to the audience, but I was yeah, manifesto. The, man <laughs> the manifesto group or something. The pH. Yeah, in that sense, <laughs> it is... I don't know if everybody's like, I'm afraid of all you people. 
Like, my sexual preferences are just so weird. <laughs> <I know. laughs> He's like, I'm a closet, what does he say? I'm a closet heterosexual. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. I think you you reminded me when because this was the first video I was ever exposed to by Bard and I was like hooked and I was thinking back like what did I like so much and it really for me like I liked all of it I had a lot of the same like I get a lot of the same sort of repulsion around like the high priesthood of like the Khan and stuff like I've tried to read it it's just like indecipherable but still intriguing to me um, but it was the the idea of the individual and the individual and this like kind of like really bombastic attack on individualism and that like resonated so deeply with what I'd already been thinking about I was like I want to know more like I want to know what is a individual where does that like line of thinking go and that actually has like been super helpful for me over the last couple of years is like learning to like like not think of myself as some sort of like hyper unified person but instead like I have these kind of like aspects of myself and that's okay like I kind of thought that was hypocritical before or something like I couldn't have this was literally uh, I started an Instagram account it's funny you mentioned hashtags after reading Bard's book because I had always like forbidden myself from having an Instagram and sharing because I thought it was fake or phony or something like it wasn't like the whole part of me and it was like like I just realized it's okay to have this like individual part of myself that like looks like shares things that I think look good on Instagram. Like that was something to be joyful about, not to like beat myself for feeling like, oh, you're such a fake or fraud because you're just sharing like nice pictures or something. Yeah. So for me, that that through line has actually been productive, and and I think it's helped me. I still I still don't have a firm handle on the individual versus the individual versus individualism and like what what's and I, I can't I, yeah how does the individual ver, like versus individual so like like you have a, a person that is not a unitary entity but it's like multitudinous um, containing like many different voices and desires and like directions and selves sort of um are individuals but then you have individualism which is more of a more of like a creed or something not quite a creed but it's more of a discrete philosophical uh approach to the world and that is different there 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 is no individualism there, there is no analogous like uh philosophy um and so he's but he still uses the word individual sometimes, and so like I, that 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 water has been pretty muddy for me the whole time. I can kind of see when he like defines each one of those terms in the, in a context. I can like understand it, but I don't understand how it all relates very clearly. Um, so yeah, what like what's the relation between individual and like individualism? He doesn't like either of them, but they seem to be different. He mentions, like, one of the parts I liked a lot, and again, I think this was in the second video, so I'm sorry if, like, not everybody watched that, but, like, some of you guys have, right? Yeah, the second part to it. He's talking about, like, at least my take on it was that the individual was kind of created in order to, like, have things be more productive, in order to sort of, like, mm -hmm. get technology moving. So, like, in the way they did that was, like, teaching people. He said Napoleon actually came up with that. It was, like, 
the reason why he was so successful is that all his soldiers knew how to read and write so that they weren't just like yelling to each other like sentries they could actually pass along information faster and that's why they were successful and so people were like we need to make everything like this we need to have reading and writing everywhere and everything can be like napoleon's army and it'll be great we'll have this like progress and it'll be like amazing and like that's to him why he's sort of like that kind of weird technological progress is like what the individual is actually all about and so like i don't know how individualism fits into that except maybe it's just like you know that's the cult of the individual or whatever it's like it's good to be an individual when really you're actually just sort of like you know a meme perpetrator like what Jonathan was talking about that's kind of like different but it's kind of the same thing to me it's like yeah. you get told you like it's great to be an individual but actually you're more like working for somebody else or some process <laughs> that you're not even fully aware of and right. it's just, like, you're not really an individual but if you think you are you'll be productive so right. yeah go ahead it's great there's a kind of parallel analysis that I've heard of that Bar doesn't mention this but it's like part of the reason Napoleon was so successful was because of democracy and the like democratization of his army so he could raise an army of 300,000 people to fight armies of like 40 or 50,000 nobles and it was like wait a minute like you peasants aren't supposed to be able to beat us like we're rich and we have armor and we ride on horses it was like oh we've got 300,000 men and then this sort of like that becomes the democracy becomes like our kind of central myth like you don't question the value of democracy ever but literally the only reason it's better is because there were more people to beat so they had to it created mimetic rivalry and you had to have an army of 300,000 people to fight an army of 300,000 people if you wanted to still be Germany you had to become a democracy like there was no choice it's like become a democracy or die essentially right so it's like this whole like mythos of the individual and, and yeah that's what democracy is right it's like the government exists to like make to get out of the way so the individual can thrive in some sense like that's kind of that like it's like to create a level playing field where every individual can like achieve their fullest potential or something I you said something that was re- that like totally resonated with me is um like I I don't think being an individual and being a member like losing yourself in a in a in a some kind of a universe some kind of a social setting or mutually exclusive and that like seems to be the tension because it's like when you talked about group therapy I can say like coming into recovery it's like one of the most like half the healing before you ever do any of the work comes from sitting it like you go into your first meeting and you've inherited this idea that you are responsible for yourself you need to pull yourself up from the bootstraps you need to be perfect you're a rugged individual and as you go through life and encounter failures and cover up the fact that you need help because you're not supposed to right you you inherit this idea of the cult of the individual that you're not you don't ask for help you better do it yourself and if you have to you know to admit any failing to that is like horrible um it's death, yeah. I mean, so you come into like your first AA meeting and you start listening to people talk, and it's like you have a head full of like ideas that nobody's done the horrible things I've done. Nobody has these thoughts. Nobody could have the childhood I had. Nobody could be suffering as much as me. And you keep them as a secret, right? Because it's like you're supposed to present this idea of success. And the first time, like, they go around the room and you hear all these people doing these things that you thought you were the only person in the world that thought this and had committed these sins 
and had fallen short in that way. And it's like, you feel this like tremendous burden lifted. And it's like, that's half of the, that's half of the miracle of like listening. It's like, you know, there's a great cartoon that's like, it's a bunch of people walking through a city and they have bubble thoughts and they, and the inside the bubble, it says that person really looks like they have it together, you know, and everybody's thinking that. So it's like, there's something it's the idea that, that to, to, to submerge yourself and emerge inside a social unit and to be like a functioning part of that unit unit is to lose your individuality. How do you break that apart? That idea. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I mean, I've never felt more myself when I'm like not fucking thinking about myself and like doing something for somebody else. And then that all those questions go away. The burden of time, the burden of history, the burden of everything goes away when it's like you find your your function and your voice and it it comes and it goes, but it's a very fine line between that and the sort of loss of identity that goes into like an ideology or something like that. That's the tension, isn't it? And that's where the idea of really quick, the idea of like an adult, like having having a sense of humility and a responsibility to yourself and to your vision and having boundaries and yet existing in the whole, like that balance seems to be part of making meaning. I was just thinking, like, coming back to what you were saying about the idea of these sort of rites of passage and that the, like, living in more of a tribal way, which is what he was, he's definitely alluding that that's a better social structure than what we have going on right now. Um, you know, but, like, within that context, each person is sort of designated as an individual, based on who, the composition of who and what they are, they are designated by those around them as to what role they would play, which sort of answers my question from earlier. And I'm glad you said that, because I had forgotten he had, he had sort of he had talked about that. Because there are people that, that sort of that next phase of adulthood will look very, very different. Like my nephew, his next phase of sort of individualism individuation will look very different than most other people like he's not he's not going to function like everyone you know he's he's autistic he's just not but he has like he has really special things about him that would fit into a community and if the community sort of you know this is how you're part of this whole while being your special self that's that's the beauty of that sort of like I still am an individual but I join something that's much bigger than myself and in that the limitations that I have are met by someone else whose assets like compensate for that in some way it's like I don't know if I'm expressing myself very well <clears throat> I think that's a really, I think that's a good example maybe to, uh, 
going back in hashtag metaphor, it's a good way to use that concept. Um, whether or not Bard thinks, I think Bard tends to be, he tends to be like a, 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 a bit of an elitist, but in the, in the way that like, he, he thinks like once you, like, he's for, he's, he's weird, he's like, I'm an elitist, some other people are gonna do the other thing, and they need to do the other thing, but I'm gonna do, I'm gonna focus on the people who are gonna win at this game, and figure out how they're doing what they're doing, in the hopes of bringing everyone up to that, like, to kind of shorten the path for, for, um, but he's under no, yeah, so he, he's oddly elitist, so the, the, maybe, maybe the, the more traditionally Christian concerns with, Passion and trying to trying to understand the person that's the marginalized or the someone who is the, the someone who isn't the Roman senator, but the, the you know the, the homeless peasant person that they are actually like important <laughs> and worth like having a place of the tribe. I think that's he he probably doesn't deal with that in his own thought, but his concepts are hashtags again. So I think it's a perfectly good use of that hashtag of like. Yeah, so when thinking about your nephew, your nephew does still need kind of the experience of recognition to help an integration into the community. And if they don't get that, what happens? I mean, I couldn't tell you how many kids I work with. Oddly, it's a weird, it's a recurrent theme of grandparents with uh, with their child's child. Mm -hmm. um, and it's typically a grandmother with her child's child. And this, the talk, I don't know, developmentally, Christiva, like, I didn't learn about, I had Christiva in my, like, psychology side of education. I don't, I don't know if she's taken seriously at all outside of critical theory studies or whatever. But that idea, I'm encountering kids who are literally the most, like, their only vision for the future is just, like, YouTube video like and all they they have no sense of an, a seductive adulthood like no no like and he has this I think Bart's on to something like and speaking to a bunch of men going like you you all need to actually seduce children sounds weird but you need to seduce children out. into <laughs> into adulthood yeah. like that they actually want to do that because if they don't um might end up, I saw a meme yesterday, like, uh, that was kind of silly, I don't even know if it was ironic or serious, but it was a, it was a person that was saying, uh, they're holding a sign at some, like, gathering, and it said, uh, hey kids, adulthood's optional, hormone blockers. <laughs> was like, and I, like, couldn't tell. Wait, is that real? That's what exactly. But the fact that I had to sit there and, I have to sit there and go, I don't know if that's real or not. It's because it's actually plausible to me that that's a line of argumentation. That, like, adulthood makes so little sense that why not just do hormone blockers in the name of child? Um, the state will just take care of you forever? Is that yeah. It's the Peter Pan syndrome, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the... Yeah, it's a, it's a Peter Pan syndrome, but in a digital... In our video game age... Peter Pan took way too many risks. Like, so, if I take Peter Pan and 
crank up his anxiety through the roof yeah. and give him video games. And that's <laughs> God. And there and honestly the the, the dance, the dance is the child's on video games in the basement. And this isn't a joke, like this is like literally happens. Yeah. And the caregiver is on video games upstairs. <laughs> well the, the caregiver's like doesn't like what's happening, but the world but at least they're I at least I know where they are. Right. You know, at least they're safe. And it's like they're not safe. No. Like, that's not that's like um, there's no and there's the that issue of uh, the dialectic between Mortito and Libido is his I don't know what to think about the child development stuff, but this idea that he's proposing is that there's this the baby comes out after you know, that cramped quarters thing, starts screaming and has to like wants to get back to some sense of union, so they go to the breast and in order to live they have to repress death. So Libido is the repression of Mortina, is the thinking. Yeah. So when you have a child who, um, what Lacan refers to as the corpseification of life, that it's just every, it's like routines without any growth. Yeah. You know, and that it's, if a child's sitting there just playing video games every day, not leaving a room, it's, it's Mortino. I mean, it's, he's thinking of it in terms of like, there's literally the lack of repression going on. And so we almost need seduction into adulthood to repress her desire yeah. to die or have some life that resembles as close as possible death. Uh, which is an interesting idea. Yeah. Least. Video games simulate libido in that, that <laughs> way. They just like, they provide the simulacra of it, but there's no content, there's no actual growth or movement in yourself. It's just in the video game. But it's very satisfying. <laughs> yeah, and VR is coming too. People aren't even like, as the planet dies and it's like there's no jobs and there's nothing to do, there's no reason to become an adult. It's like you'll have VR. You'll VR porn, you know? It's like yeah. you don't have to do anything. Yeah. He did say, like, the, I just remembered at one point, he said, like, everybody will have a place. Like, one thing, he's like, don't get discouraged. If you have only this one thing you can do and you're looking at these guys who are like these manly men in this new future where they're like jumping into frozen lakes and doing all this shit, like, you'll be appreciated for whatever it is that you provide or whatever, which is like, and these guys will help you figure out what that is. But he definitely as a general trend seems to be, he even says like, one of these things is like, you gotta pick Rousseau or Nietzsche. Like when yeah. you go into a room and if you're there to try to turn everybody into a victim, it's like, he's like, I'm with Nietzsche. You're supposed to like generally lift everybody up. Right. But supposedly, like, everybody will also be included. You don't have to be, like... It won't be this constant competition. And then, like... But it's kind of vague as to how that would actually... Look like. Well, in a Nietzschean approach to someone who's less competent doesn't have to look like, you know, gassing them, right? It could be, like, you know, you're actually treating them as someone who has value as opposed to, like, mm -hmm. a Rousseauian approach to that person who's less competent be like, oh, you're such a victim. Like, of course you don't have to... You know, let me get that for you. It's like... And, like, this is my experience interacting with people. Uh, many friends of mine I've known who have siblings with Down syndrome. Um, it's like if you engage with them in a way that's uh, like, yeah, let's go do something. Let's kick a soccer ball. Let's go. Let's fight. Let's wrestle. Whatever it is, like, they respond to that really well. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you sort of, like, treat them like they're fragile and they're glass, like, they don't like that. So, I mean, this is obviously a generalization and probably not true in every case. But that's my experience of it, at least. Yeah, mine too, actually. 
you also have the experiences, like, well, personally, as a father, where you have to, like, condemn being a child, and it's so fucking hard. Yeah. That it's like, I don't know, and it brings up trauma from your own past, and you're like, <laughs> condemn? Yeah. How, how, how do you mean? I mean, in order to facilitate growth. Uh-huh. Yep. Like, yeah. just. It's not okay to just leave a bag of chips spread all over the floor. Yeah, that's like a minor thing, but like it extends to every minor thing. And like, I mean, that's what growing up is, is like constant correction Mm -hmm. in some context. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like when you were talking, you both of you mentioned, it's like underlying what you were saying is like, uh, you know, with the image of the kid in the basement and then the adult like basically paralyzed out of fear for a loss of safety it's like all I could think was like you have to surrender something surrender a sense that like there has to be a risk taken you have to give something up to like to change that and that's like what nobody in a consumer society wants to give like to surrender anything that's part of the infantilization right is just keep like keep consuming out of a sense of like hebitude almost and it's like you'll remain safe in some kind of a bubble the sense of like sa- sacrifice or surrender or risk you know yeah. has been lost Jordan Peterson's like pop version of that is let uh, the kids don't, skate yeah forward. don't bother kids when they're skating. that's what I was right? thinking of when he was yeah, talking that's what I had the like, same thought it's, it's like, like it requires a set my kids crawl around in the rubble barefoot yeah you're doing a good job <laughs> by themselves <laughs> Some of them might not make it. That's like, uh, oh, there's this great agrarian writer who I, it's kind of like Wendell Berry-ish, Gene Logsdon, and he's like, we had a pond growing up and had like six foot steep dirt banks around half of it. And it's like, if you fell in, you're going to drown. He's like, what our parents always said was like, any kid of mine who's dumb enough to drown. It's like, <laughs> it seemed like a very well-adjusted person who had a happy childhood at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, there is this element. I like the word seduction because it doesn't imply like a heavy-handed criticism, corrective measure to adulthood. It implies more like attraction rather than promotion, like making it attractive to be an adult. I mean, I didn't become an adult until sometime later on, (laughs) like far past the age maybe I should have. You know, and it was, there was this element, one, on the one hand, of feeling crushed and incapable and not really, like, understanding that there was more to life than being in that stuck place, right, of, like, not really living, just existing, that, uh, yeah, that just empty, like, never-ending, ugh, you know, and having sort of an attraction to the other to the people who were representing something different you know like that more adult probably further along than adult now that I find out there's some stages beyond beyond that I like the word seduction more because I think as a parent I was far more corrective I had a lot of fear about turning out inept children that couldn't deal with life probably more on the critical side. I regret that a lot. Yeah, I think there's a piggyback on that with when I kind of, the particular ones I'm thinking of, 
it's this very magical dynamic when the parent, it doesn't matter if they're a, a male or a female, but when there's just the safety, like keeping them in the nest and kind of attending to their needs. And then the phallic tends to be more like, I don't want to raise a nest children. Like, but what we're lacking oftentimes is any vision for adulthood that can seduce them. So we end up cracking the whip yeah. because how else are we going to get them to do it? Well, he's kind of proposing like kids in a, he's at least suggesting like, you know, well, in the tribe back in the day, which we're no longer tribal, there's no going back to them. But back then, where we evolved, apparently what worked for us was actually like a bit of a seduction into wanting to go out on the hunt or wanting to participate in the in whatever responsibilities because that you, you know, what did they even go do? You know, like what did what, what did where are they like what did they do? What did they talk about? What did they, you know, wanting to be a part of that. Um, that that yeah so in the absence of any vision for adulthood we end up just cracking the whip yeah and I see that a lot and that's almost yeah. like a, a dysfunctional phallic mode <laughs> I think there's another word for that but, uh, <laughs> erectile dysfunction yeah erectile dysfunction <laughs> phallic mode and, uh, <laughs> and the and the absence of a phallic intrusion would be other and they're both kind of an absence of the phallic intrusion to the degree that the phallic corresponds to some vision for desire. I just thought of something when you were talking that I don't think he makes this connection, at least not in the video that I watched, but, like, why is there, like, mass infantilization? And hearing both of you talk, I like, it's like, oh, because as children, we're supposed to grow up and not want to be like our parents. Like, that is an essential thing. But you also need to have adults that you do want to be like. But if you're just a nuclear family, mm -hmm. you don't have yes. anybody to where you're like, what do you go off in the woods and do? Like, you're like, I see what you do all day long, and I don't want to be like that. <laughs> I love that part where he's like, the nuclear family, so boring. Yeah. He's like, why are we doing this? It's kind of it was yeah. invented. Yeah. And he, like, gives you the day of yeah, it's really, yeah, that just... Yeah, I like that connection. Yeah. yeah. Well, because often what are we reflecting as parents? We go out and we work and we come home and we're tired and it's like Cranky. a long day at work and or whatever, you know, sort of like, why but, would a kid look at that and find it attractive? Or even if you are the coolest parent who does the coolest stuff, your kid's yeah. not going to want to do what yeah. you do. Yeah. They're going to want to do what somebody else's parents do. Yeah. Or if they're also to be boring, then they're just going to want to do what their friends do. So. And if you're one of the cool moms. It yeah. seems like that point connects really well to the question of the individual as yeah. well. Like, why, like, what's wrong with this? First, what is individual and individualism? As far as I understand, he suggests that it used to be God was this kind of metaphysical constant, whatever that means. Uh, <laughs> and then it's the individual. And he literally, he's like, we forget how literal that was. Like, it literally, you were, like, had this speck of individual, and it's in your your gland in your brain like you literally thought that and now we're like ah, it's a little literal but like we literally thought it was like in the same way god was up there so likewise your individualness was in your gland in your brain um and it becomes the basis of rights and you're independent yep. from other people so you're perfectly competent you need to be thought of as an individual like and if i think of you isolated 
that's actually an appropriate way to think about you. Where in a more tribal and maybe a more individual sort of notion, it's like actually you can't even make sense of a person apart yeah. from the relationships that they're in. Yeah, you remember Schmechtenberger was like, we need to like find a way of thinking of ourselves as emergent mm -hmm. properties from yeah. nature. Yeah. Likewise with our own communities, mm -hmm. we're like emergent properties of our communities, right? Yes. We're not yeah. isolated yeah. individuals. So with a kid, if a kid's stuck at home and we're in a society where like that's supposed to work, right? Because it's just, heck, you don't even need two parents with one. I mean, an individual should, right. should I mean, yeah, isn't, isn't this what human beings do? They give birth as an individual to an individual and then it turns out good. Right? And it maybe doesn't. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> because maybe we're not individuals. Like maybe mm -hmm. as isolated creatures, that's not actually the way to even make sense of who right. we are, what we are. Yeah. yeah. And he suggests the next metaphysical constant is the net. Is the he, net? Yeah, and he's not so much speaking of the internet, although that becomes like the symbol of it. It's just thinking of networks. Yeah. As primarily the thing that, that the yeah. is. Like that's what's most real. It's really interesting to me because that is, I feel like, what is taking shape now, especially with canceling of schools. All of the discussion I see online now between all the parents that I know is who are we going to be forming a network with? Yes. Who are we going to be schooling with? And Notice the death of Napoleon like school. Up right away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and it, does, it didn't even, you know, it doesn't take that much. Just a global pandemic. Yeah. But it yeah. is interesting that now that's, and we're talking about like the older kids are going to be schooling the younger kids and like figuring out all these dynamics that's like, yeah, duh. Like <laughs> that's how things should be. <laughs> Rather than farming the children off to be educated. It is exciting. It's also like, it's really, it, it, like this is the elitist thing. It's like the people who have the means to like do that and do that well are yeah. going to thrive. And a yeah. lot of people just don't have access to that or even like access to these kinds of modes yeah. of thinking about it in this way. And they're just going to be like putting their kids in front of a computer and letting the school still do its thing, which it seems like that's probably not better. I don't know if it's worse. Yeah. And then there will be kids who are just left to languish totally, yeah, right. not even given a computer. Yeah. But that happens even in the, <coughs> oh, yeah. like the pre-COVID yeah. system. Like that yeah. hasn't changed. It's just been highlighted in a different color. Or maybe accelerated. <laughs> yeah. Ways. Yeah, the parents that are really sort of isolated into their individual family units and not well connected with other parents really at the tough. school or parents with children their age, yeah. The, the elitist thing, I want to jump on that one too because I, I think, notice, two people could have access to the internet and one of them could still try and do Napoleon school. Right. Right. And, right. Uh, or, and this is the Hegel point, I think, is that there's, this was the, this was so far out to me, I did occurred to me one day that I mean people farm your data all day right. like you're, you're every time you click you're constantly providing something that's valuable and at least and they've been doing this for a long time but very few of us have any conscious awareness that that's 
our function in the system because we're actually creating value and, and we're just kind of going about our lives and there's and this idea that the slave in Hegel is a master-slave dialectic that like the idea that a, a person wouldn't really understand what they were in the system was a, such a foreign idea to me. The idea that a slave wouldn't really understand what it meant to be a slave just seems crazy to me. Like, I just assumed they would know clearly in the system what a slave Where is and fit, how it yeah. functions. And like, but they likely just got up and did whatever the hell that person told me so I don't get hit. Like, that was a lot likely the level of consciousness. And over a process of like reflection over time other historical forces, people become aware of kind of what they are in the system. So likewise, in the in this digital age, like our way, our consciousness is fo follows from actuality. So we're actually contributing value in the system in a way that we don't get compensated for. Hmm. We don't need. We're not even aware of. And very few of us have the consciousness of that and think of ourselves and conduct ourselves in a way that's. So likewise, with the net as like a new, creating new possibilities of relating, some people will kind of figure that out, mm -hmm. and their consciousness will like get, like a, how they conduct themselves in the world will be kind of in awareness of that, and other people just are not gonna, not gonna do that. Like their consciousness will not kind of, the shape of consciousness won't change. They'll just kind of keep on doing the Napoleons, trying to do the Napoleons school online, um, which has, doesn't mean they're good or bad or evil or anything, it's just kind of like, if it's just one universe, there's kind of a lack, consciousness is unevenly distributed, um, and that's yeah. going to have consequences. Or, or the feeling of power is uneven. Yeah. People can be conscious and still feel powerless to yes. do anything yes, different that's true. and continue in the same action. Hmm. So I would add that to the little and we're also in the upheaval of the newness of the technology so we have really poor ways of using it for most of us right like we talked about this earlier uh, social media is like the tabloids right the printing press is invented it's like what do we do oh we make gossip and like fight about obscure interpretation issues from the Bible. <laughs> what else would you use it for? <laughs> I'm really curious, so when, at the very beginning of the video when he was talking about He's talking about atheists and like he was sort of like talking about how stupid it was because of the idea of creating God and he was talking about like right maybe the 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 gods that were created previously don't work for you but you can't really say that anyone wouldn't be created. I found myself wondering when he was talking about that because that's sort of in line with something that I've thought about over time. It's like it's less important whether the thing is in truth real, but what it does for us as humans to like have a conception of 
God, whatever that is. And I found myself wondering when he was talking about that, I was like, yeah, right on. Like, so, so why do we do that? What does that mean? What is it in us that, that we would generate these various gods over and over and over again, like throughout human history, you know, and it's like today, we wouldn't label certain things as gods, but we certainly worship and sacrifice as if they are, right? And so I, I don't know, I would just, I wrote down like, why do we do that? What's the purpose? How does it help us? You know, because I, and I'm wondering what other people think about that because it's a fascinating thing to me. It's like, it's fascinating. To the extent that we have a conception of God, it seems like uh, like useful shorthand for like collecting a whole body of, of um, well, I, I mean, at least I think the role like a lot of traditional the gods in traditional societies have played is it's a it's a shorthand for a um, collected body of, of uh, like adaptive processes to, that that are not just are adaptive in your lifetime but are transgenerationally adaptive like it, it conduces to the, to the survival and thriving of your group across time um, and it's sort of this like emergent wisdom that happens and you, you like we we're, we live in community we relate to each other and so we conceive of we conceive of this principle as a, as a as a personal entity, or there's a tendency to conceive of the God as a personal entity because that's that's we relate more powerfully to personal entities than we do to abstract concepts. Um, that's how I that's that's my understanding of like why we why we have made gods in like the overtly religious sense and in the absence of and I think yeah there's there's this it's sort of I don't think anybody any one person invents it. And I think it's like slowly evolves and slowly takes on the aspect of a person, and you relate to it culturally as though it is that that person. And um, when, and then, you know, there's, I guess, with the, the sort of the enlightenment and modernity, you have this realization like there is no actual person. And so everyone's like, well, what are we doing? Let's just like come up with our own thing. But then you've lost all of that, all of that. Uh, that, in, that transgenerational wisdom—that's yep. not like ex, that's not explicit scientific wisdom. It's it's a it's like it's just lived this this crude lived experience of of. I mean, granted, that experience is valid in a certain niche, and religion will be a more powerful meme to the extent that that it's 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 uh, its truths are tra- are uh, are applicable to multiple niches um but when you when we've like created such a profoundly different niche for our, ourselves than we've ever had before now we're like we're in the, we're in we're in need of like that same kind of intergenerational wisdom that is the how it applies to where we are now is is uh, is like difficult to parse out and so and we don't have that that same sort of related historical relationship to the solutions we do have, so they're up for grabs. They're just they're they're like 
activated, um, and we also we don't know how it's going to impact like the next the next twenty years, let alone the next like like twenty generations. Like like um, yeah, I don't know. That's I yeah, and it, I, really quick. I think I, I that was great. That was brilliant and profound. And it's like I I buy into that and like the part. The flip side of that, I think the underbelly of that, that like somebody like ne- like that the nineteenth century was reacting to and like, oh here comes nihilism <laughs> when they said God is, when Nietzsche said God is dead, which has been wildly misinterpreted, is that on the on the individual level is like you lose that sense of hum like a sense of humility and fitting into the cosmos. And that was that throw the baby out with the bathwater by dismantling these monotheistic religions and these empire religions. And it's like, yeah, that made sense. But on an individual level, it also had like it had it was a profound experience for the individual to like fit in with a sense of humility and service and participation in like the eternal flow of life. If that. Yeah. So thank you for that. That was like, there's something about the the personality too of the that which you're like relating to. That 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 seems so crucial to actually gain gain uh, like memetic traction, like um, because you. So the memes are generated in this, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but when I think about the memes, like, being generated in a sense to support a particular religion, which is a series of rituals and ideas and uh, theology and doctrine about the nature of God and the nature of our relationship to God in general. And so, like, the thing that was fascinating to me was he was, like, he was he was essentially saying, like, okay, so now we live in this sort of world where God is dead. You know, like, the old stories that we talk about this, about God, whatever God is, um, are being discarded in mass by a lot of people. Not by everyone, obviously, but he... It was, like, the idea was fascinating to me that we would create another god. (laughs) That was the piece that I went, like, why? Because we've done it over and over again, right? Like, what is it about being human that we we need to do that, that we have the urge to do that? And, I mean, I don't have the answer, but it was just, like, there's, it was like a glimpse behind the curtain of myself. And I know what, like, the ideas, like, because these are things I think about. Like, I believe in God, probably not what, I mean, it's my understanding of this thing I call God, you know, which encompasses all the mystery of life that I don't understand and, and is, like, beyond my limitations, right? You know, these things that happen in reality that are, like, obviously have nothing to do with me couldn't have been accomplished. So, like, it's this thing. You know, but in my head, I'm like, you know, it could totally just be a fantasy that makes me feel better. And I'm okay with that, too. You know, like, it doesn't matter. It serves a purpose in my life. It gives meaning and structure. But 
but that's the thing that I'm curious about is like what is it about being human that we create this thing over and over and over again that has power over things that we don't right like these are some sort of characteristics through time that sort of provides a sense of order or a sense of meaning for seemingly random events for suffering you know anyway it was just like what he was saying he's like <laughs> the way he said it I just went what the fuck is it about being human that we do that would like we need that we need that and whether we call it God or not we need something that explains and so anyway I don't know I think part of his point there from other stuff I've read, I'd be curious to hear what you, because you've read Synthism, right? No, thank you. Oh. Yeah? <laughs> That's a common Grab the kid. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. Read I thought you were talking about no, the cat was trying to <laughs> <laughs> um, I think part of Bart's point is that, like, we are unconsciously creating God with the internet and technology yeah. and AI yeah. and all this yeah. stuff. Yeah. And he's like, wouldn't it be better if we were conscious about it? Because yes. we're doing it anyway. That's like, right. this is what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm curious if you have more insight on that, like, her question from reading Synthism. Well, she like, brought, why? Why do we do One that? little, one thing you brought up was um, that they have power over things we do not. Um, that this is, so I'm going to jump rails a little bit. This isn't Bart, but I think this is kind of a thing that he, up on is there was this guy that was like um, I have uh, it was this really like naive description but let's just run with it it's um, I, I reach a river and I can't cross the river but I have a god Bob and Bob has huge legs and Bob can cross the river and go get that deer that or whatever swam across the river that I can't swim across the river so God is a, a Bob has the power to do what mm-hmm. I cannot do and he kind of goes this person kind of goes the belief in Bob when we build a bridge to get across the river the belief in Bob kind of dissipates right. and then we go on to then we have some other gods and he was just talking about that dynamic of that there's something about gods are in a bit are imagining um, and I don't mean imagination in the sense of not true but are, it is at the very least um, to the degree that we're using, we're not seeing it, right? We're thinking it, and it's a thought about what's po- about some yes. possible exercise of power in a domain that we are powerless. Uh, so that at the very least, it's that. Yeah. Well, technology is the movement from being powerless to being powerful. Now, technology is very crude, right? Like, uh, uh, okay, like, um, it's, yeah, so there's a ways in which it's very naive, but at the very least, he's kind of thinking of, like, what would, could we play that, that movement out? Could we use our religious thinking as ways to kind of, as categories, as things to kind of help us imagine what's possible? And as we kind of get a ridiculous amount of technology, can it actually embody some of our religious aspirations? Um, yeah, like can we, can those, and again, it's a hashtag. It's not a particular, it's not a link. It doesn't link to some program. It's just kind of going like, if religion is kind of imagining power where we do not have power, and if 
that's kind of what technology can do for us. And why not make technology? Why not? Why not think about technology religiously? Um, in some sense, yet to be determined. Except there's the countervailing myth of Frankenstein and Icarus and the tree of knowledge that yeah. is built into. And that's interesting to me because there's no way that that could foresee it foresees its own undoing by looking into an abyss of possibility. And that's and that and that's like this is where I find Bard. This is actually the thing I find most refreshing about Bard is he's not a technological utopian in the traditional sense Mm -hmm. because he's and he's also not an. This is where some of his anti-individualism comes in. Is he actually believes like, oh no, we don't love the stranger. Like, we're we're tribal. Like, we're not changing. We will like fight, and we will. We don't even know ourselves. Like, right. like so technology. Um, if the if we went from local gods and the you have the two tribes and the shaman would kind of go between the tribes and the shaman goes, actually there's one god, and we're the spider differences were a common enemy. So there's a gathering of everyone, a unity that's kind of. Created that hopefully helps offset the tribal conflict to some degree. Uh, there's at least some ability to relate to one another aside from warfare. Uh, I think that that's that like technology actually should be about our limitations as human beings, not an endless extension of our infinite power. Which is what Nietzsche wanted from the Ubermensch, right? Is like beat yourself against that as hard as you can, you know. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I just, <laughs> anyway, sorry. He just, yeah, he just beyond yeah. beyond. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, and his point he makes not in this video, but in other places about how like um, uh, like what we need now is a new renaissance, not a new enlightenment. Like we need to understand what fundamentally makes us human and be huh. good at that. Yeah. Because at some point the machines are going to be like, "Hey, what are humans good for?" And we're going to have to explain it. <laughs> and we and don't it's have not an at being machines. Yeah. Like we are not better at being machines than the machines are. Yeah. Hmm. Which it keeps that. That's the cool thing I think about his Cynthia's vision is it keeps God being other. Like it's not so much like I get rid of God and and technology is just an extension of myself. Right. It's like it actually needs to embody the ways of being powerful that we are powerless. Um, in ways that actually come to terms with our very real limitations. And in that process, as we symbiotically relate to that, mm. we have to understand what we contribute to this universe. Um, because if we're not going to out-machine the machine. So what do we bring? So he kind of imagines a Judgment Day scenario where the <laughs> where the machines ask, what are you good for? And it's like, we better have a good answer. Yeah, we better have a good answer. <laughs> Hmm. So, I, so I, I lo- it's only been re- when I first heard his Cynthiaism pitch I was like this is gone <laughs> I was like who would believe in this religion uh, and I still maybe think that in some ways but it's become more it's become two things kind of saved it for me one was this idea of like taking into consideration our limitations as the actual basis for thinking about technology so blockchain is a good example. Blockchain is maybe an opportunity for people who don't know one another to trust one another. Um, and it locks in history in a way that can be reckoned. Um, so he's like, it's brutal, but maybe it's necessary. Um, and 
and then the other one was that it it doesn't just take into consideration our limitations, but it actually kind of it's technology that has a possibility of transcending us, and in that sense, still keeping that other structure that's true to our religious impulses. Because we're never satisfied if God's just an extension of us. Like it's like it's like forcing a laugh. Which of these books did he write first? Netocrats. Netocrats. There was, so he has two trilogies, but one of them is not complete yet. And the first trilogy, which is, gets us in Netocrats, Global Empire, and Body Machines. Body Machines. Um, And then this trilogy consists of Synthiasm, Digital Libido, and what's so Cynthiaism is the first in the trilogy. Yeah, first in the second trilogy. In the second trilogy. Okay. And uh, I highly recommend reading Metacrats if yeah, you like his work. Best. It's the most accessible, and he wrote it before a lot of everything that's been happening. And as I read that book, I was just like, oh, 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 like, like, it's like, how did you write this before? Really? Eleven happened. Yeah, it was it was prophetic in like in a sense. That that book's frightening. There's very few philosophy books that I... Now you know who the heck he was when I got it originally. I, that, that thing just blew me out of You can listen to it. There's an audio book. That's Netocrats. Mm-hmm. And he has a co-author named Sodokovist. Jan. Jan. Jan Sodokovist. And, like, you never hear any interviews with him. It's always <laughs> Bard being the mouthpiece. Like, so when we're... As we're talking about Bard, like, it's unclear how much of... The thought that we're attributing to him is like, well, I don't know. They yeah. seem they they seem to be, by Bard's account, they seem to be pretty true collaborators. Yeah. Like, and that they both have very like they both have strengths and weaknesses, and they complement each other perfectly, or very well for their purposes. And so it's mm. Bard is a pithy shorthand for that's this whole body of thought that also yeah. covers this other guy that we never hear from. Yeah, he he said in this. Did you watch the second part video that Jonathan sent the link to? Because he talks about him in that. And oh, he's yeah. like, he's like, yeah, I have this other person who's like the total opposite of me, <laughs> and like he lives in a villa in Italy and just with like, a wife and kids. Yeah, with wife and kids, and it's like, yeah, it's an interesting point. Like we talk bard, 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 but there's this like whole other person who's like seems fundamental to the mm-hmm. thought. There. Huh. So if I so I'll watch the second video, but then where would I go from there in terms of watch? Like, what would I watch next to sort of get a better grasp on what? His I think working for Sweeney versus Bar. Yeah. What do you think? You just that's been your. Yeah, I I really enjoy it. I wish there were times where he would break some of the theory down a little more or explain some stuff more, but. Um, I like it. it. It seemed to like he th- combines a lot of his ideas in there, not completely. So you're still left like looking for the breadcrumbs yeah. that you're talking about. What is Sweeney versus Bard? Is that it's a, like a podcast. podcast? We should keep going with this. I mean, I, that would be my vote with Bard. Yeah. How is how is you listen to the Parallax or at least a couple of one of the Parallax uh, um, interviews with that that German German interviewer? Where he goes through digital libido, he talks about there's a phallus and death, and there's like a few of like like four or five episodes that are uh, at least ostensibly a, a more 
compact, he explicitly goes through digital libido and sort of outlines his thinking mm -hmm. in that book. Um, I don't know. Did you find that helpful? I lost track. Which one were we talking about? I think I the, sent you a link like a few several weeks ago to. Oh like, yeah. The, there's an episode called Phallus. Mm -hmm. Then there's like four or five more. Yeah, I, f I found that a little more like explanatory, I think. But I think it's just his style, like hopping around and having so many complex ideas. Um, yeah, yeah. He doesn't. He's not. He can't really build up. He doesn't. He's not building up a system of thoughts. Yeah. Much. It's like yeah. kind of hashtagging this cloud of like yeah, yeah. Uh, like associated meanings. Mm -hmm. Like that, that, and that honestly is probably why I enjoy listening to him, is I feel like there's room for my own creativity, because mm -hmm. I'm forced to kind of make connections, because yeah. he doesn't spell out. So, like, Jackie had this moment of, like, oh, I got how these two things are related. It's like that mm -hmm. spark that connected those two things was, like, your own creativity and your own thinking. Yeah. So that's why I feel like it's a, a participant. Like, because, and I think it's due to a character yeah. fault of it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I'll, I'll use it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's. Yeah, because I, I do. I have that same impulse that Wes was talking about earlier of like, like oh, you're just like reference this person like he's some sort of. Like, you'll be like, well, Marx, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, yo, you can't just. But, like, <laughs> you, you can't, can't just tell me to read Marx. Like, <laughs> right, yeah. I know there's Marx in this. I've read Marx. So you can say yeah, that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not that easy. moral dualism in his speaking too that is just like mm -hmm. this is good and this is evil I know and I'm just like fuck that and like, I don't life's more nuanced than that <laughs> explain it yeah. he hates the Gnostics um, and it's like foundational in his language too you know like his terms of like Mortito and Lido I suppose you could frame it that way the phallic vision you could frame in that light too the war of good and evil, and I know that's a part of reality, but it's also like, I find it frustrating in some of the speaking. So, the Parallax podcast, is that what we're going to do next? I think I think you shared them, but I, I think that would be... Uh, I feel like they're, they're pretty hidden, this, but I think all of them are... Is that the one you sent today? No, the one I actually sent today might be a decent... It's one of the few ones where he talks about some of the ideas of the Metacritic yeah. book. So it's from, it's weird because he's, he talked a lot. Um, the interviewer, you literally can't understand. The, inter the guy apologizes. It's like, blah, blah, blah. but Bart's like, runs hey, over Bart so doesn't much even need a person. Um, but that, that one might be a good one to get some context for someone who's thinking around the Medicare stuff to give some background. But otherwise, I'd say Sweeney versus Bard. Or the parallel, any of them. I'm, I'm, I would be game for going through that stuff again. I find it rewarding each time. What stuff? The, the, like, continuing on with Bard. Yeah, yeah. At least Sweeney versus Bard. I went Berian and the Jew. I went this. Yeah, like, that one's so, on so specific to like Swedish politics. Yeah. Um, well, plus I'm just a dumb American, so I wouldn't understand it. An infantilized. when you're working from home and you eat like three lunches a day. <laughs> Fuck, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> that, those episodes of 
stand a lot for some reason. I, I can't remember. They're super related. Yeah. With help me on like were the ones where he was talking with, with Bart? No. It was just an interview with him. Um, the first one was like unifying psychology or psych I can't remember. I'll send you guys a link. For some reason that made me appreciate Bart. Yeah, they've actually had conversations. Bart's a little bit of a pariah, so like I don't think they've had public conversations, but they've had private conversations and he's kind of acknowledged that Although he doesn't know what to do with the like psychology, the, the Lacanian, like repression, death. He doesn't quite know what to do with that, but the other stuff. He's a pariah, like in the in academia, or, um, or? mostly on Twitter. Don't go to his Twitter. <laughs> yeah, who is a pariah on Twitter? <laughs> like in the same way Peterson is with the left, or yeah, 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 yeah very much. So. I can sort of understand that. I mean, because in the wrong hands or from the wrong perspective, some of the ideas could be really twisted into something nefarious. I could understand. He's a bit of a trickster, too. Like, he's he's okay to, like, just kind of be... He's okay if he's a lightning rod for people. Yeah, he had a whole like. I remember maybe it was Sweeney versus Bard, where he talked about an interview he did with a neo-Nazi like politician, like a right. like a debate or something. He's like, "I'll talk to anybody." Like, that's not okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Internet culture is. I yeah, actually that Bard because the thing that is cool is if if we were to do some working through that Bard versus Sweeney, there's a lot of stuff on Rene Girard later yeah. on, and there's a lot. It just opens up in a lot of different. Cool. That could be good for conversation, for sure. I mean, if, if I yeah, I'm sure. game for whatever. But. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the um, uh, parallax, Sweeney Todd, Sweeney Todd, Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd. <laughs> <laughs> the you hungry? <laughs> um, <laughs> in the Sweeney V Bard, um, there's like it's ongoing, so it's just like thirty. But with the parallax, there's only like four, which I just it's kind of. More bracketed. <coughs> I remember his. The uh, only reason I'm pausing at the parallax one is I remember his one on technology. I found fairly uninspired for Bard, given mm. that he's normally like so interesting on that topic. Yeah. Huh. I, I just found it kind of like yeah, he just kind of didn't bring up any of his ideas that are like. Mm-hmm. At least that was my. Maybe I was having a bad <laughs> Maybe what we could do is instead of having one episode that we then branch out from we just we can all look at the uh, Sweeney versus Bard feed and just choose whatever's interesting go as deep as we want or stay as cool. like yeah um, that's mm-hmm. what I was going to suggest was what you said last week right yeah, brown, yeah. Kinda like. The, that one was I mean that one was like start with an episode that's that's the like the anchor point and then we can branch out from there if we want but we can I don't really know clear episode to point to. Can I propose, right, I'm going to yeah. make a proposal, feel free to shoot this down, um, is maybe we could have one episode that we all have in common, and then just roam from there, mm-hmm. and I would actually suggest the episode that I sent out today, the oh, most recent yeah. one, the one that covers some <laughs> of the autocrat ideas, and it gives, I think, some, because digital libido is just so into the, like, magical and the Alec and all that, but the Netocrat stuff doesn't really, he doesn't talk about that. He actually talks about it, but it's so hidden, you don't realize it until until 
later, but in retrospect, he talks about all the stuff, but I didn't notice it when I was reading it before. I looked at digital video. Is that part of the Sweeney No, it's, it's just a totally random so start with one-off that. he did okay. with someone, and, and then just dive into Sweeney versus Bard if you guys got time. Or, you know, yeah, that way we have at least a common... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, good. Um, we've uh, got the dis- our Discord server up, and we had a meeting on it the other night, which was really fun. Trask and I have like have chatted on it, and Holly, Holly was we I think yeah no it was the three of us, right? Or was it was the three of us? It was yeah yeah. Cool. It was like you can just you, it's just like a, a program you can have open on your computer in in the background. And you can be like in the voice chat room, just like doing something else, and then somebody else logs on, and it just allows, yeah. unlike any anything else I found digitally, it allows for this like serendipitous kind of, even if it's just uh, how's it going, how's your day going, like right you don't have to make a plan and schedule it. You just people show up if they're available or you don't. And um, they call it the campfire. Yeah, it's like a face the FaceTime thing. What's that? You can do video. You can do video or just, or just <laughs> audio. Um, and uh, we also have got a, started a bunch of chat channels or text channels, which I think they were pretty broad at first. But I think it makes more sense to have them organized by topic. So had, I started one for uh, like conspiracy, like for, for just kind of posting kind of like episodes or articles about people like addressing the sort of conspir- how to looking at how to address conspiracy narratives. Um, in a helpful, in a constructive way, and um, so I had like there's a channel called Conspiracy, and there's a channel called What the Hell Is That Alexander Barr Talking About? Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm gonna hopefully change, figure out how to change the permissions so anybody is that's a part of the a part of the server can can start a new a new conversation thread too. And um, yeah, it's actually. Wasn't I was really re- hesitant to kind of bring more tech into the this this group, but it's I actually I'm really enjoying it. It doesn't feel like a burden. I don't get off the Discord server and feel overwhelmed. It's like feels kind of cool. Like, if you can post, I don't I don't know if the link I sent would actually. It's from like a Google Apps. I don't know how app specific it is. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can post it on there too, so that or at least. Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be helpful. There, there's also a weekly meeting one where we can like kind of uh, have post the episode we're going to listen to, and then kind of the next meeting, and then, um, so I'll probably try to do that tonight or tomorrow. Um, yeah, and then I'll send out invites to the Discord as well, and kind of give a basic rundown as to how it works. Well, I'll try to. My thought was to keep it as like just text out the basic sort of information about what the when we're meeting, what we're what we're discussing, and um, just do that via text as well. So anybody who doesn't want to like spend time on the Discord doesn't have to, and it's not like necessary for involvement. But if you're interested, it could be another layer of involvement throughout the week. And yeah. Stuff, so. Cool. Sweet. Cool. I just want to say this was a great conversation. Yeah, this is really. I missed Walter's voice. Yes. Yeah. Today. yeah. I feel I I heard Always a text from him and he. I got a text from him and I never actually we had been talking about it we talked about it after he left and I don't know if we got to that point maybe it was maybe I turned off the, the recorder after like so he didn't know we were meeting tonight and so uh, I dropped the ball <laughs> but 
what part of Wheatley did Can we request <laughs> him, <laughs> his opinions on Bard? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so we have some. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah thanks, everybody. Really yeah. Good.